Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. First Corinthians chapter 16, this morning we will be reading the entire chapter and bringing to a conclusion our series of studies through the book of First Corinthians. Hear the word of God. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus was the first convert, were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This last chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians suffers from what we would call in writing an awkward transition, or what a DJ might call a bad segue. What Paul has just done in chapter 15, if you remember from last week, he finished that section, that very long chapter, with a stirring, powerful, emotional description of that great day when Jesus Christ will return. When he, the risen Lord, will come and cause all who have put their faith in him to be raised from the dead, to be made perfect in body and soul. 
And you remember, he ends chapter 15 with this great victory chant. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you catch your breath from that crescendo of praise, that glorious vision of the return of Christ, then he launches into a laundry list of instructions about taking up a collection, a travel itinerary, and some personal greetings. How anticlimactic. But you have to remember that this was not a work of literature. This was a personal letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And it was very common practice in those days to end your letter with some general instructions, some greetings, some comments about your plans for the future. Most of Paul's letters in the New Testament end this way. But as you look more carefully, as I tried to do this week, and you dig into what he's saying here, I think you see an important connection between this glorious chapter 15 about the resurrection and what he's talking about in chapter 16. In the midst of a bunch of seemingly unrelated instructions and greetings, what you see here is Paul's worldview, Paul's heart, Paul's passions, Paul's values. If you want me to really know you, all you need to do is give me your schedule and planning book for about 10 minutes, and I'll tell you a lot about yourself. Because what we plan for the future, what we schedule, reflects our heart, reflects our values, reflects our priorities. Last week, if you were here, you remember how Owen talked about how our worldview, in other words, what we believe is real, determines what we believe is true. And what we believe is true determines what we consider to be good in life, what we value in life. And what we consider to be good and, and valuable in life determines how we behave, what we do. Well, in chapter 15, what Paul was saying to us over and over again in a powerful way is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. It happened. It's history. It is the ultimate reality for us. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is coming again to cause us to be raised from the dead for all eternity. Once you plug that into your worldview, once you say that's a big part of what I believe to be real in life, it will transform your beliefs, it will transform your values, and it will ultimately transform your behavior. And that's what you're seeing here in chapter 16. Paul wants to give the Corinthian Christians a resurrection mindset. He wants the resurrection, the coming resurrection that is based in Christ's resurrection in the past, he wants that to be the reference point for our lives and therefore to see our lives transformed. You'll remember as we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul, one of the biggest issues that Paul has had to address in that church was their worldliness. They were very much caught up in the things of this world. Remember the very beginning, the very first subject that he addresses 
is the division among them, but then he gets into what's behind some of the division, and it was their worldliness, that they valued worldly wisdom over the wisdom of God. And so he spends a significant amount of time telling them that they need to take their eyes off the world's wisdom and put their eyes upon the wisdom of God and see the world in that way. Based in that worldly wisdom, that enamor being enamored with worldly wisdom, it had led, as you remember, to sexual sin being pervasive in the church. And that they were even flirting with idolatry in the church. Begin because they were so caught up in this world, in what this world values, in what this world does. And so that's what Paul confronts. And there's no mistake, no, no missing the connection between him trying to break them out of that mindset and the fact that he spends the longest section in this letter on the resurrection of Christ and the implications of his resurrections for uh, his resurrection on our lives. He's saying to the Corinthians the same thing that Peter said in chapter 3 of 2 Peter verses 13 and 14, where he says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. See what Peter's saying? We are living in expectancy of a new heavens and a new earth when Christ comes again. Since we are li living with that expectation, it's going to have a profound impact on the way that we live. We are going to be diligent to be holy, to be ready, to be at peace while we wait for him. Well, here in chapter 16, this is what you see here, some examples of how this powerful hope of the coming resurrection changes us. We're going to see that it changes how we view our earthly resources, our money, our possessions, our things. It changes the way that we look at our leaders. We don't look at them the way the world looks at them. And it changes where we go to, where we look for inner strength. These are just examples. There's nothing exhaustive about his list. He, again, this is Paul. I'm not sure he's even consciously meaning to talk about, use these examples to teach this. It's just flowing out of his mindset that is focused around the resurrection. Let's look at the first issue. How the resurrection gives us a new investment strategy. It gives us a new view of the material things in our life. Verse one, Paul reminds the Corinthian Christians about the collection for the saints. Now, he calls it the collection for the saints. He doesn't describe what it is here. He assumes that they know what it is because it was well known among the churches that Paul ministered to in the first century. This is an important but often overlooked part of Paul's ministry to the churches. Everywhere he went, planting churches and strengthening churches, he raised money for some poor Christians in Jerusalem. It was an important part of his ministry. If you look carefully at the book of Acts and you read carefully through the letters that he wrote, this was an ongoing ministry that accompanied his preaching of the gospel. We tend to think of Paul as an ivory tower theologian. But mercy ministry was very important to Paul. Giving to the poor and needy was an, was an essential part of his teaching and ministry. If spent, me spending 10 months with your schedule and planning book tells me a lot about who you are, spending 10 minutes with your checkbook or your bank statement will tell me even more about who you are. And that's what Paul's addressing here. During the early days 
of the church of Jesus Christ, as we see it recorded in the book of Acts, we know that at the very beginning, it says there were no needy persons in their midst. That's an amazing statement. I, wish, I hope that can be said of everybody here at Oakwood. I hope that can be said of every church where the gospel is preached, that in the church, there are no needy people in our midst, because there shouldn't be. We saw in the book of Acts how they sold their possessions and gave generously to anyone in need. There were no poor Christians in Jerusalem at first. But you remember after Stephen was stoned, it says that persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And many Christians were driven out of Jerusalem by the persecution. We know from scripture and from history that shortly after that, a series of famines swept through Judea. And the church, the Christians in Jerusalem were affected in many ways because of the persecution more severely, more harshly than the other people in Jerusalem. And so these Jewish Christians were suffering. And so Paul's part, an important part of Paul's ministry, everywhere he went, preaching and strengthening churches, he asked them to give to these poor Christians living in Jerusalem. Just a side note, look at verse 3. Notice there that Paul refuses to handle the money. An important lesson for anyone who's in leadership. He refuses to handle the money. He says that he wants them to gather the collection and then he, he wants accredited representatives from the church in Corinth to take the money to Jerusalem because as we know from elsewhere, especially in 2 Corinthians, there were many people who were Paul's opponents who accused him of only doing what he did for the money. So he didn't even touch the money that was collected for these saints. But this collection, all these collections from all the different churches for these poor Jewish Christians had a much greater, much bigger purpose than relieving their suffering. Paul alludes to it over in Romans when he writes to the church in Rome about this collection. Let me read verses 26 and 27. It says, For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, spirit, in their spiritual blessings, the spiritual blessing of the Jews being God's people, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Paul is saying this, the gospel has brought together the Jew and the Gentile into this glorious new church. It's a powerful thing. We forget that in the first century. That was huge how God, through the gospel, brought together the Jewish people, his people of the old covenant, with the Gentiles, the people of the nations, to form the church. And Paul says, you need to give to these suffering Jewish Christians because you have received so much in terms of spiritual blessings from being united with them in the covenant of grace. He, he speaks even more profoundly, more powerfully of this purpose of the collection over in Ephesians chapter 2. Let me begin reading in verse 13, where Paul says, But now in Christ Jesus, you, speaking to the Gentiles, you who were once far off, had been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you, those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father." 
You see, this is the power of the resurrection. The resurrection says the gospel is true. And if the gospel is true, then there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no male, there is no female. We are all sinners saved by grace in Jesus Christ. This collection had the powerful purpose of expressing that breaking down of the walls that separate people that we might all come and worship Christ and know Christ. But I want you to notice one more thing about this collection. Notice that it was to be gathered on the first day of the week. Why? What was special about the first day of the week? It was the new Sabbath of the church. It was the Lord's day. We see that clearly taught in the New Testament, that the Jewish Christians stopped worshiping on the seventh day, the old covenant day of rest and worship, and began gathering and worshiping on the first day of the week. Why? Because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead on the first day of the week. Paul is clearly showing the connection between worship and giving, between the resurrection of Christ and the reason why we give. It's because he's raised from the dead that we give. You know, it's interesting, we've been talking among the leadership for quite a while now about making online giving available to people because people expect it. That's how we do, that's how we pay our bills, that's how we buy our goods. And so most churches, the vast majority of churches, have switched over to an online giving option. I have resisted it because I'm uncomfortable with it. And we are actually, I think we're coming around to maybe providing it soon, but only primarily so that people away from Oakwood, people who are formally connected with Oakwood, people who are outside of the area can give and support, especially the building project. But I think there's a danger when you separate your giving, your tithing, your offerings from worship. If you stop putting your tithes and your offerings in the plate when it's passed around in worship and you start just automatically having it deducted from your account and sent online to the church, you are losing an important element of worship. The giving of tithes and offerings has always been, from the very beginning, even here in Corinth, it was an act of worship on the first day of the week. And so I know it's easier, and I know the church would probably buy it, benefit financially if people had it more convenient to give their tithes and offerings online, but I would encourage you to not do that. I would encourage you to bring it as an act of worship, because it's meant to be a heart response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that means to your life. This is the effect of finding your hope in the resurrection. We value people over money. We value relationships over possession. We value eternal investments over earthly investments. That's what your giving to the Lord means. Freely you have received, freely you are to give. Jesus, remember Jesus told an odd story about a man who was a lousy manager of his master's money. He was a steward. He was a manager of the master's money. And he was very bad at it, and so he was about to get fired. And when he found out he was going to get fired, first thing he did is he called in all the people who owed his master's money, his master money, and he retired their debt at a discount. In some cases, a significant discount. Why did he do it, Jesus said? Because he wanted those people that he benefited, those people he did the favor to, even though it was illegal, immoral, he wanted them to be able to be nice to him and take care of him after he got fired. What a weird story that was. That's one of the weirdest parables that Jesus told. 
And he's saying, you need to think that way. And you're like, what? You've got to be kidding me. He was, he was a wicked man. He's saying, no, not in that sense, but in the sense that you invest your resources in making friends for eternity. That's essentially what he says. Here's the, the moral of the story, according to Jesus. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Do you see how the resurrection of Jesus Christ affects how you use your money? You want to invest in discipling people in the name of Jesus Christ. You want to invest in evangelizing people for Jesus Christ. You want your resources as much as possible to go towards making eternal relationship that you will enjoy in the new heavens and new earth with these people who have come to know Christ through the proclamation of the gospel and the ministry of discipleship. Don't invest your time, talent, and treasures in the things of this fallen world. That's what Paul's really saying to these Corinthian Christians. Invest your efforts and resources in discipling those who will become your eternal friends. Secondly, Paul says, this resurrection gives us a new perspective on our leaders. Change gears here, verses 5 through 9. Paul talks about his own leadership. He says he wants to follow up this very difficult letter that he's written to the Corinthians with a personal visit. He wants to spend time with them. That's the way a Christ-like leader is. A Christ-like leader doesn't want to just lecture to the people that he's responsible for. He doesn't want to just write hard letters or confront sin verbally. He wants to be with the people. Paul says, I could visit you quickly now and still get on with my travel itinerary, but I want to wait because I want to spend more time with you. It was important to him to spend time with the people, but he couldn't come yet because, he says, there's a wide door of effective work in Ephesus for him and many adversaries. Do you ever notice how those two things tend to go together? A wide door of opportunity for the gospel and adversaries. And so Paul says, I can't leave. I've got, I'm too much engaged in how the Lord is using me here. But then in verses 10 through 17, Paul writes about three other spiritual leaders that the Corinthian church knew. A very long section in the middle of this chapter. He begins by talking about Timothy. Paul says he's going to be sending Timothy to Corinth soon. Timothy's going to get there before Paul does. But Paul noticed that he's, Paul is very concerned about what kind of reception Timothy was going to receive from the Corinthian Christians. He says, see that you put him at ease. It's an odd thing to say about an incoming pastor, leader. Make sure you make him at ease. Make him comfortable. What a strange concern that Paul has. And then he goes on to say something even more point. He says, let no one despise him. His concern is that they will despise him when he arrives. Now, again, we're trying to pull together what we know about Timothy from other parts of Scripture. We know that Timothy was not an impressive pastor by worldly standards. We know that, and we know that the Corinthians tended to view people by worldly standards. So keep that in mind. They wanted impressive leaders by the world standards, and Timothy was not that. We know from the book of Acts and the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy in the New Testament that he was Paul's apprentice. We know that he was a very young pastor. Some commentators think he was even still in his 20s. We know that from reading 1 and 2 Timothy, that Timothy struggled with fear. Paul kept encouraging him to not be afraid. Timothy was a very timid leader. And we also know that he had chronic health problems. Paul says to 
to treat his ailments, what he calls his frequent ailments. So he's a sickly, timid leader who was very young in age. You can see why Paul was concerned that they would put him at ease, encourage him, build him up, and not despise him for his weaknesses. When Samuel was unimpressed with David, the one who was called to be king of Israel, the Lord said to him, the man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. That's what Paul is asking the Corinthians to do. Look at his heart. Don't look at his outward appearance. Look at his heart. He goes on to say, he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. And that's what's really important, is that Timothy was doing the work of the Lord, just as Paul was. And so his ministry was just as important as Paul's ministry. The second leader that Paul mentions is Apollos. This was the guy that the Corinthians wanted Paul to send. Every commentary I read said that, that reading between the lines here, remember most of the, the letter of 1 Corinthians was written as a, a, you know, a response to a bunch of requests and questions from the church in Corinth. And so Paul is responding to a request that the church in Corinth had sent that, they, that he would send Apollos to him. The church in Corinth knew Apollos. Apollos was an impressive leader by worldly standards. He was trained in the best academic institutions in Alexandria. He was an eloquent and powerful speaker with a thorough knowledge of scripture. That's what we know from the book of Acts. Let me read to you just a description of him that Luke gives in the book of Acts. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, he says. And then skipping down, it says that when he arrived in Corinth, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. He was highly educated. He knew the scriptures inside and out. He was an eloquent speaker. He was a powerful speaker. That's how the Corinthians know it. And you can understand why they wanted him to come back. We also know from earlier in this letter that Apollos had groupies in Corinth. There was a group of people who said, I follow Apollos. While other groups said, I follow Paul or I follow Peter. But there were a group there that idolized Apollos. We have a tendency to mix thankfulness for those who mentor us, instruct us, disciple us in the scriptures. We have a tendency as sinners to mix that thankfulness with idolatry, with idolizing these leaders. I follow Calvin. I follow Sproul. I follow Keller. These are great men of God who have been greatly used of God. But as I know them, they point us to Christ, not to themselves. And that's the problem in Corinth. They wanted Apollos to come and make them great. Apollos, Calvin, Sproul, Keller, these are great men, but they're rare in the kingdom of God. You're not likely to get one of them as your pastor. And so this explains Paul's Timothy, his concern for Timothy. They wanted Apollos, and they were getting Timothy. 
And he says, you're not being shortchanged by the Lord. This brings us to the last leader he mentions, which is a man named Stephanus. Stephanus, as he's talked about back in chapter 1, Paul says, that was the first family that I baptized in Corinth. He was the first fruits of many believers to come. And from what he says here, it looks like Stephanus was one of the leaders of the church of Corinth from the very beginning. He was a good elder, no doubt, in the church. Paul says here he was devoted to the service of the saints. He knew what servant leadership was about. He was a good servant leader in Corinth. But in verses 15 through 17, Paul has to urge the Corinthians to be subject to such as these, someone like Stephanus, and give recognition to such people. Why did he have to encourage them to do that? Because they weren't doing that. They weren't being subject to the leader that God had placed in their midst from the very beginning. They weren't giving honor and recognition to those whom the Lord had placed in their midst from the beginning. Isn't it true that for us Christians in our own churches, that the pastors, the elders, the deacons on the other side of the fence always look better than the ones we have within our fence? We have a sinful tendency to take our long-term faithful leaders for granted. And we have a tendency to become overly critical of them due to familiarity. We're taking for granted. Are you doing that with the leaders, the spiritual leaders in your life? Pining away for someone who's bigger, better, greater, more attuned, whatever. Paul says, be subject and give honor to such people. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. You see, this resurrection mindset, this expectation of the coming of Christ, enables us to see the eternal perspective, and therefore to see that the spiritual qualities of leaders, the humility, the doctrinal fidelity, the faithfulness, the servanthood, the Christ-centeredness, that these things are far more valuable from an eternal perspective than charisma or eloquence or physical presence. And so Paul says... Think about the resurrection so that you'll honor the leaders whom God has granted to you and honor them. Thirdly and finally, quickly, the resurrection gives us a new source of inner strength. I skipped over something that Paul does right in the middle of the chapter. He just throws in a few quick comments. He's known to do this at the end of his letters. But these commands are rooted in an eternal perspective brought about by the resurrection. I'm going to run quickly through them. First of all, be watchful. This phrase, be watchful, is, this is, a, uh, again, which verse are we talking about here? This is beginning in verse 13. Be watchful. This phrase is almost always used in the New Testament in the context of waiting for the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you do a word study on that phrase, be watchful, that's what you'll find. It's almost always in the context of looking for the coming of Christ. He says, be mindful of the coming of Christ and be alert, be spiritually alert. Jesus himself said, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour. So that's Paul's instruction. In light of the coming resurrection, be spiritually alert and live expectantly. Secondly, stand firm in the faith. 
It's a repeat of what he said back at the end of chapter 15 as a conclusion to his teaching on the resurrection, where he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Stand firm in the faith. When those waves of suffering and temptation and persecution hit us, we stand firm because our hope is not in this world. The things that we truly value cannot be taken away from us. And we will possess them in full. Our trust is not in our health, our wealth, or our reputation. Our trust is in the coming of Jesus Christ. And then he says, act like men, be strong. I know in this culture that doesn't land on the ears very easily. He's talking to all Christians. Be men, man up, he says. It was back in a day when sexism and gender identity weren't hot issues in the culture. And so he could say that and people understood what he meant. He means be disciplined, be mature, be responsible, be courageous, be bold, based in the knowledge that Christ is risen and we will be too. As Psalm 56 verse 11 says, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then finally, he says, let all that you do be done in love. It's our hope in Christ that enables us to live sacrificially in love for others, that motivates us, gives us a passion to love others the way he first loved us. So where do you look for your inner strength? The reason we don't handle stress very well is we're looking for inner strength in the wrong places. We are to find it in the resurrection this is the power of the gospel, as Paul puts it back in chapter 15, verses 19 and 20. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Our hope cannot be taken away because Christ is risen and Christ is coming again. What you believe is real determines what you believe is true. What you believe is true determines what you believe is good. And what you believe is good determines what you do. And if the resurrection is real, that means that the gospel is true. Christ died for our sins and was raised on the third day for our justification. And this hope of the resurrection transforms how we use our resources, how we treat our leaders, and where we look to for inner strength, among many other things. And so I just want you to notice in concluding the last thing that Paul says, the very end of this letter, he pronounces a curse upon those who do not love Christ. He pronounces a blessing upon those who do love Christ. But right there in the middle of that last statement, he says, oh Lord, come. That's his final plea. It's a, in the original language, this letter is written in Greek, but this word is not Greek. This word is Aramaic. It was a Jewish word that the people of God knew because they used it all the time. It was a prayer they offered all the time. It was an Aramaic word, the word Maranatha. Our Lord, come. That's how we are to start every day with that prayer. Maranatha, O Lord, come. That's how we are to end every day. Maranatha, O Lord, come. That expectation of the coming of Christ will change you from the inside out. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. We thank you for your patience with us as we have worked our way through it. Thank you for the truth that it has imparted into our hearts and into our minds. Lord, may our lives continually be changed by what you have taught us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.